0: Welcome to Logos. I am excited today to share my in-depth discussion with Stephen Hicks on the recent evolution of philosophy. Our modern search for some meaning has rather created a tendency towards nihilistic movements and in a search to we prize from such ideas. Stephen Hicks has done great work of educating not only at Walkford University as a philosophy professor and director of the Centre for Entrepreneurship, but as well with his numerous publications like Explaining Postmodernism and Nietzsche and the Nazis to bring these rather abstract philosophical matters down to a standpoint that is understandable and can actually shift the modern philosophical movements towards a higher ideal. like to go into an in-depth discussion on what philosophy one can actually adopt as a strategy of achieving what can be perceived as the best possible life Mm. Uh, yeah
1: all right good project
0: (laughs) yeah of course not a simple one but i think with such a big spirit and we can talk about this of um nihilism and yeah the postmodern and marxist ideas being spread mm. i believe it is really important to build this kind of from the ground um so you don't lose people at the start
1: yeah yeah that uh pitching it as a foundational project i think is the right approach
0: So where do you think should one start?
1: Hmm. Uh, well, I, yeah, I think uh, obviously the best place to start is uh, what we all hope for uh, when we are parents with respect to our children, that uh, we want to provide them with many opportunities to uh, stimulate their senses, enable them to learn how to use their bodies well, uh, and doing both of those things also involves cognitive development so they uh, have a, have a rich environment in which they can start to develop their language skills and their uh, their early reasoning skills and all of this in a uh, an emotionally uh, safe environment so that they know that they can uh, experiment and there are going to be the normal fears and failures but they, uh, there are some boundaries within which children are exploring and failing that they uh, don't have too much pain and too much discomfort so they're not discouraged from trying again and then also the uh, I think the example of parents <clears throat> is, uh, is very important since children learn a lot hopefully from what we say to them but also they are observers and they learn a lot from what parents do so setting what we take to be a, a healthy example. <clears throat> and the idea then is I think if you uh, have a child who in the early years is uh, is physically healthy, is uh, cognitively active and, and learning all of the basics and has a sense, uh, an, an emotional sense that the world is an interesting, enjoyable, exciting place, then uh, that's the, uh, the best possible foundation in childhood.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you see, um, especially in the importance of education from a young age, since if the parents already are teaching ideas that are not going to bring the children forth as they should, it's, it's a real danger for, of course, the next generation, and this amplifies itself in the future. Certainly,
1: yes. Yeah, and there are any number of uh, you know, I- examples that parents can set in their personal behavior that uh, are, are sabotaging of uh, young people's um, development. There are explicit beliefs that parents can put onto children that also are, are sabotaging. Uh, and then, of course, any sort of uh, physical abuse uh, is also extraordinarily sabotaging as well. So, you know, at least in a rough and ready way, we know what all of those things are. Uh, uh, but uh, if we want to get past the rough and ready sense, this is where intellectuals and professional educators need to uh, uh, be operating at a high level of integrity and a high level of commitment to uh to kind of scientific development. Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, the, 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 for, the professional intellectuals and the in, uh, professional educators are, are contributing to the sabotage. You mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, some of the, uh, the more nihilistic segments of our intellectual class right now, postmodernism uh, being one of them. Uh, and that certainly is one of the, the challenges that we're facing right now
0: definitely and what i'm really curious about in your role of being this kind of educator um how do you see your students over time um changing or Mm. um, the beliefs that they are being taught um, manifesting in their lives
1: yes well, uh, yeah, I've spent many years teaching uh, students in the United States, so that's my my largest sample. But with the growth of the internet um, and the response to my, my books and other publications, I've been <clears throat> corresponding with students from all over the world. So in one sense, my uh, I'm a little bit saddened uh, over the last generation. I don't think this generation of students is any less intelligent than previous generations and i think in their own way they are still ambitious to have a meaningful and significant life but i do think they have been done a disservice by formal education formal schooling uh over the last generation that they are uh, suffering more from indoctrination types of education and uh they also have been I'm not sure what the right kind of word is, but a kind of therapeutic or a paternalistic approach to education that uh, less is expected of them, more is done for them by the institutions. Uh, And and also this, what I'm calling this therapeutic idea that in some sense, uh, students need to be uh, protected from a dangerous world. uh, And so they grow up a little more fearful a little more uh, sensing that other people, authorities are going to do things for them. And by the time they get to university, they're, they're, they're not less intelligent, but they are less self-resourceful than uh, previous generations. And I think that's that's problematic. So uh, you know, I've got a certain amount of anecdotal evidence, but I also look at the studies and it does seem to show that students are more fearful Uh, less able to take on the challenges of university education. But at the same time, uh, I've I've been very encouraged by just how many intelligent young people there are all over the world who, despite in some cases pretty uh, uh, poor economic circumstances, more repressive political circumstances, dysfunctional parenting, they are, they're eager, they're active-minded, they're, they're looking for uh, new voices, new ways of looking at the world, uh, they want to make something of their lives, so they are using the internet actively to find uh, uh, people they can have uh, interesting conversations with and perhaps learn from. So that's a very encouraging development to me. Absolutely, and
0: I think we as well see there the, the difference between kind of like just following a path and whatever might come and the active choice of choosing to spend one's time um, with no incentive of being forced to or having to and just wanting to consume the content. Right.
1: Yeah, parents are important. Teachers are important. Other kinds of role models and heroes are important. But the most important lesson, I think, of, of, of youth is learning that it's really up to you uh, to do something with your life. And especially since we are such a potentially intelligent being, developing those habits of active mindedness uh, are are fundamental.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And in an increasing calling for, for security instead of this kind of freedom but freedom of course brings with it the responsibility of doing what's actually right rather than a kind of slavery where one is secure but cannot really choose what to do
1: and yes yeah no i think uh, uh you know security is a great value and it should be folded into the other value pursuits you know so i don't know just to take an example right You you're in potsdam right now and uh, suppose, or I'm in Chicago and, uh, you know, you want to go to, uh, to Amsterdam and I want to go to, to Los Angeles. So you set a goal for yourself and, and your goal is to get there. And safety is part of that. You want to get there safely. But at the same time, the more important thing is you want to get to Amsterdam or you want to get yeah. to Los Angeles. And uh, letting fears about safety and something might go wrong prevent you from achieving that goal that is a that is a mis, a, a, a mis, uh, of, of of your values. At the same time, I think on all sorts of uh, you know lesser things uh, that typically were big risks and big safety problems for human beings. It is one of the great achievements of civilization that we are so safe in so many ways that we don't have to think about certain sorts of things. So, you know, I don't have to worry about my drinking water being clean when I when I turn on the tap or, or, or I take a bath. So that, uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a safety feature that has been developed and automated to the point that I don't have to think about that anymore. And that eases my mind, but it also frees up all kinds of mental time and energy that I can put onto more rewarding things, right? Or, you know, another example, we you know, we develop automobiles and planes that enable us to see you know the uh, all of the wonderful things uh, that are out there in the world and we make them safer and safer so that you know we develop traffic lights and rules of the road and all of that is automated so that I don't have to worry about certain sorts of fears and, and safety issues anymore and I can focus on enjoying the journey and, and devoting my time to other things as well. So uh, I think the the, the, the safe spaces, issues that we should be worried about right now are things that you cannot ever automate and delegate to someone else so deciding for myself what my political beliefs are going to be or my religious beliefs are going to be or uh, what my 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 love life is going to be like you know there are risks in all of those areas but there is there is no way of automating any of those things or delegating uh, uh, the the decision making to someone else. All of those things are built into being a human being. You have to uh, think about your ideology and your philosophy and your religion and your romance for yourself, and take on the risks of those of, of failures in all of those areas. So the uh, the, the uh, safe spaces getting a bad rap, I think, is legitimate because the people who are pushing for safe spaces. Are really the people who want to, uh, to take on for themselves, deciding for you what opinions you can be exposed to, and that's that's a danger to you. They're 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 Absolutely. making they're making you safer, but by making you less of a human being, and that's a big problem.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of the definition of speech being able to hurt um, physically. Yes. Of- and
1: yes. I think this well, def-
0: this redefinition, yeah, has,
1: yeah, this yeah, redefinition
0: has enabled, um, yeah.
1: The, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. I think we were garbled a little bit. So just restate your, your thought there to make sure I understand it. Of course,
0: yeah, I believe this redefinition kind of enabled this um, spiral to wanting now to protect against speech that maybe could someone de- disagree with
1: yes well uh yeah that's uh certainly a, a trajectory line and uh, we do see lots of examples of that right in various places uh you know speech can hurt right it, it does hurt your feelings right and it can uh, hurt your uh, sense of uh, how smart you are, for example, if you believe someone and someone gives you some good data and some good arguments that makes you think, oh my goodness, I was wrong, right? And then, you know, it, it does hurt to think I was wrong and have to change my mind and, and so forth, right? Or when people say things that are insulting, you know, even if you're a tough person and you have good self-esteem and you know that you're basically good and that the, the insult is ungrounded, it still is, is hurtful, because you don't want to be in a social society where people are you know, maliciously attacking each other and so on. So I do think it's appropriate that we, we, we look at all of the kinds of hurt that speech can do and decide which ones uh, we're going to work on uh, uh, being more diplomatic in how we phrase things and uh, setting up social environments in which you know, people feel comfortable expressing certain opinions. And, and, uh, and when hurtful speech arises, how we respond to it you know, by disapproval or, 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 or criticizing a person for, for saying something inappropriately hurtful. But bottom line still has to be that uh, people need to be able to express their views. And uh, sometimes people should be insulted. You know, there is a place for insult in society. Uh, And what counts as an appropriate insult as opposed to an inappropriate insult, that's something that we have to work out on an ongoing basis. And it always has to be a bottom line that any opinion uh, has to be justified, and the justification for any opinion needs to be revisited by each individual, and uh, it has to be in principle subject to criticism. So there should be no opinions that are immune from criticism. And so when this quest for people being more civil and more diplomatic shades over into uh, censorship uh, uh, or even an expectation of social uniformity, that's where it becomes dangerous.
0: Yeah. And my idea as well there um, in regards to the eruption of such a um, postmodern. Uh, philosophy that ultimately there is no none of uh, no universal truth um, might be just have been able to come forth because um, it has become so difficult to question actually um, even beliefs that might be valid and so um, as well these beliefs where just stapled as not um, universally correct because there always was a lack of um, ultimate evidence.
1: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a complicated uh, uh, set of concepts in that proposition. Uh, and, and some of them I think would need to be right unpacked. So we have the concept of truth which is certainly a big one. The yeah. concept of universality, right, in uh, in truth as well. I would put a plug in for the concept of objectivity, mm-hmm. which is uh, related to universality, but they're not quite the same. And then the, the issue of uh, postmodernism and what that means. And then uh, uh, the follow-up issues about social dynamics and questioning and absolutes and what uh, what can and can't be said and so forth. So uh, Where in that package do you think we should start with the concept of truth, or should we talk about postmodernism? What's the best direction to go at this point?
0: I think um, the basis is postmodernism here because that's the main topic.
1: Okay, yeah. So, postmodernism, right, in my view, is uh, 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 a consistently negative answer to all of philosophy's questions, basically saying that those questions are not answerable or ultimately they are meaningless questions. And so rather than thinking of philosophy as a quest for for truth, for some understanding of goodness or beauty, any sort of positive value, the postmodern answer is to be a skeptical and cynical about all of those, and ultimately then to say, uh, truth is meaningless, or there is no such thing as truth. <clears throat> uh, there is no such thing as as goodness uh, in any sort of objective or universal sense, and the same thing with respect to to beauty. So, what the postmoderns are pointing to then is to say, you know, what do we do, or what do I do uh, when I come to think? that uh, there is no right answer, there is no knowledge, there is no goodness. And from that perspective, most of the postmoderns then say all we are left with is subjective desires uh, that came from usually various kinds of social forces that were unpredictable. But I can't say that my subjective desires or my subjective values are, are true or good. I just happen to believe them. Or it might uh, be that uh, um, the, the values that I happen to have were conditioned into me or constructed into me by various kinds of social forces, and I'm not in control of any of those social forces, so I can't really say that they are right or true or good. I, they just happen to be part of the, the social grouping that, that, that I'm in. So then when I start to think about you or other people, then I say, well, the same is true, so to speak of you as well. You just happen to have your beliefs and I happen to have my beliefs or you happen to have your values and I happen to have my values or my happens to have our truths and your group happens to have your truths. And there is no rational, objective, universal uh, source of truth or factuality for any of us to appeal to. So all we're left with is just, Different so, values in conflict with each other, and then uh, it's going to be ultimately some sort of a power struggle. So, if that's what we mean by postmodernism, then we can go on to uh, to the other issues.
0: But exactly there um, in the issue of not regarding any actual factual opinion as true, um, I see the first contradiction as if there is no truth. Then, how can there be the truth that there is no truth?
1: Yes, certainly. So, uh, yeah, postmodernism or any strong form of skepticism does have the problem of articulating itself without contradiction, right? So, if I say, you know, the truth is that there is no truth, right? Or it's a fact that there are no facts, right? Or um, uh, nobody uh, has a universal goodness, right? But then I'm offering that as a, a, a good thing to say that applies universally. So there are all of these uh, paradoxes and uh, they do consistently get put to the postmoderns and, and to other forms of skeptics as, skeptics as well. And so the way that they will typically respond to that is to say, Yes, you are showing right, the, the, the limits of language, and mm-hmm. all I can really do is say uh, that when we use language, uh, language does somehow seem to have uh, a rhetorical effect on other people, that language is a form of power, and the right answer, or the, the right, right, again in quotation mark, way to think about language is not does, is it true? Does it map onto reality? Does it communicate objective or universal facts about the world? But does the use of language uh, uh, have the power to get people to do what you want them to do? So if it's the case that I, my group is in conflict with your group and I can use some language that makes you feel guilty or makes you feel defensive, or messes with your sense that you have some knowledge about the way the world works, then that's a good weapon for me to use in this conflict between your group and my group because it puts you on the defensive. So if I say, there is no truth, and you come back and you say, whoa, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that and making sense of that and then and you go off and you start you know, spending 10 hours thinking about abstract philosophy and objectivity, right, and so forth, then that's great for me because then you are not engaging in any sort of political activism and I've kind of taken you out of the field, for example, and uh, I, I can then just spend my time doing more political activism because you're off doing philosophy that's going to be pointless. So The idea here is that uh, in answer to the claim that my skepticism is self-contradictory, I'll say that's fine, but I'm not really that interested in logical consistency. I'm interested in shutting you up or diverting your attention to pointless tasks.
0: Yeah, well, that it's difficult to, wrap your head around these ideas because they're they're hard to grasp oh, yeah. and um apart from few individuals um i do not think if you fully understand what what this actually means that uh, i'm not discrediting that this exists but mm. i don't think that many actually yeah. would so. um identify as that but rather be influenced by these ideas oh. um, greatly through um, as we talked about the education and then kind of lift this out, but not even really understand it.
1: Right. No, I think that's the way it works. It always is a tiny minority of people <clears throat> who understand the the philosophical ideas well, thoroughly and know the arguments for and against, right? And so on. For the larger majority of people, even the larger majority of thoughtful people, it's more a matter of partial grasp and a felt influence. So it takes them in a certain direction. And so they will uh, use the ideas in their field without necessarily fully grasping those, those ideas. So you know, by analogy in the, you know, the history of most religions, it's always going to be a small number of theologians. You know, to take the Christian example you know, say, well, yeah, you know, we will we'll, we'll try to work out what the Trinity is all about and transubstantiation and the paradoxes of the doctrine of original sin and so forth. But for the vast majority of people who think of themselves as Christians, they have a rough and ready understanding of the ideas and they just try to apply them in their lives in, uh, in various directions. So the same thing I think happens in the, in the case of the postmodern use of language in its activist form. Most activist postmodernists you know, will not be able to sit down and have a deep discussion with you about epistemology and semantics and what Foucault and Derrida said about this, that, or the other thing. Rather, the leading postmodernists have provided them with a, a linguistic toolkit, or a set of weapons that are rhetorically useful. So, so for example, you know, on this question of truth, you know, one of the ones that we're, we're, we're grappling with right now is we're having a revived discussion of racial issues in, uh, in, in the West and more broadly and historically speaking and so on. And so one of the things that postmodern race activists will learn is that it's very effective just to throw out all sorts of accusations of racism or some sort of claim about history, about the way history works. And they're not really interested in whether that accusation of racism is true. You know, so I might you know, single you out, Sebastian, and I've never met you. I don't really know anything about you. Anything that you've said, but I do know if you and I are having any sort of, say, Facebook argument or other, if I accuse you of being a racist, right? And I say, yeah, well, you said this, and that means that you're a kind of racist. And I even have just some silly argument right for that. What that's going to do to you is it's going to get inside your head. You're going to be all stressed out. You might feel a little bit guilty and ashamed. And if you become guilty and ashamed, that puts you in a very defensive position. And it's a lot easier than to attack you, right? And and for you to retreat uh, and be a little more accommodating, right? And so forth. So the point is not that the accusation of racism is meant to be true or to state a fact, but I'm using it as a weapon against you in what I take to be a, a racial conflict or a racial war.
0: Exactly. And of course, this fits right into the pattern because if you do not believe that there is truth, then yeah, there's no reason to use the words as intended, If um, but you can rather just pick them out and maybe um, an accurate comparison could be with this uh, kind of will to power um, from our prehistoric times, um, right. when we would rather yeah. use our force and actually strength physically to intimidate, and um, of course, yeah, we've gone quite beyond just that. But this is kind of, I would um, assume, uh, reincarnation.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and the will to power language is kind of most famously associated with Nietzsche. So, if we want to put it in philosophical terms, right? Yeah, the difference between the the uh, the postmoderns and the moderns, right? Or the, uh, the, uh, the liberals and the power activists is yeah, precisely over our understanding of power. So you know, the, the moderns and the enlightenment liberals and so forth will all say, you know, power is a good thing. And we need power to be able to get stuff done. Uh, you know, knowledge is power. Uh, uh, health is a form of power and so forth. But the idea is that power is to be in the service of truth. And power is to be in the service of things that are good, right? So it's a means to an end. So the postmoderns come along though, and they're very skeptical about all sorts of things. And they will then say, well, there is no truth. There is no goodness. There is no justice. So all we're left with is power kind of as an end in itself and the increase in power. So it's power divorced from any conception of truth or, or goodness. And then it just becomes a, an adversarial weapon to be used against people you don't like.
0: Yeah, of course. And to use this kind of, to come to the initial question of what then, if not um, such a kind of resentful philosophy um, could you adopt to actually live a meaningful life? and then of course we have the great role of truth already being completely fundamental um, as in the postmodern philosophy it's left out
1: that's right so yes uh sort of to confront this nihilistic or cynical and adversarial understanding of power and all of the philosophy behind it. I do think the most powerful thing we need as individuals, and, and then by extension as a, as a society, is a more powerful, positive philosophy. So uh, you know, human beings, you know, our source of power is our minds, or right? the, the capacity of our, our brains to take in a huge amount of information, Abstract, uh, to abstract, to do various concepts, to put those concepts into sophisticated propositions, and then to do logic and mathematics and all of the formal apparatus of science to figure out the way the world works. So our power is in the cultivation, the development of the power of our minds. You know, unlike other animal species, you know the lion is, is you know physically powerful or uh, other species are physically fast or they are, Uh, able to uh, withstand extremes of temperature. Those are not the powers that uh, we human beings have. So it's precisely the fact that postmodernism is attacking human beings philosophically. It's attacking the power of their minds by saying, your mind is impotent to know reality. There, There is no knowledge. There is no way to know what the truth is. There is no such thing as objectivity. That is a deeply disempowering thing for humans to come to believe. Right? Right. Uh, so we do need better cognitive theory, we do need better epistemology. The other thing uh, is that's profoundly disempowering about postmodernism is its collectivized analysis. So all of the language about uh, social construction and identity politics really amounts to seeing people not as individuals, but if all of the in, the identities that make you you are a matter of different social constituents, con- constituencies rather that you are born into that are seen as shaping you. So all you are is this uh, intersection of group identities, and they make you who you are. So the, that is a very disempowering thing because it takes away from the individual all agency, all sense of, I am in control. Uh, I am responsible. And to the extent that you don't think you are in control uh, or that you are responsible, you become a different kind of being. So we need a better understanding of of human nature and human agency Uh, that, yes, of course, we're all born into various social networks but we do have the power to think for ourselves about all of those social influences. So my parents might have a certain politics or my teacher might have a certain religion that I have the capacity to think about those political beliefs and to consider what alternatives there might be to weigh evidence pro and con and to accept or reject for myself, my parents' politics or my teacher's religion. Or I might be conditioned to dress a certain way when I am a child than to say, well, there's lots of different fashion options out there and to go looking and to make up my own mind about what I think looks nice and, and, and suits my particular style. The same way most of us do with respect to music. And in, in this way, the arts might be one of our saving graces that we do have a, a worldwide culture now of young people having access to all sorts of musical media from all over the world. And we have these tools, these powerful tools in our hands, right, I've got mine you know, right here, that enable us to, uh, for ourselves, explore all sorts of music and decide for ourselves what kind of music we like and to explore as we want and develop in a sense of our ourselves as uh, our own musical agents, right, and so on. So that sense of individual agency. So I don't happen to like the kind of music because That was what my parents like, and that's the only thing that they taught me, or that my musical teacher said, This is the kind of music that you are going to learn, and these are the instruments that you are going to play, and I have to do those sorts of things. So I can become my own musical person, I can become my own fashion person, my own political person, my own religious person. So that's what the modern world has largely been about encouraging individuals to take responsibility and giving them the freedom. To, uh, to become their own agents and of course to hold them responsible uh, for for those decisions and that's uh, precisely why postmodernism despite all of its talk about power and and, and, and disempowerment and so forth is itself uh, an, an, an anti-power philosophy because it, uh, it it destroys the underpinnings of individuals actually becoming powerful human beings in themselves. It reduces them to, to victims and i think that's partly why we hear all of this victim talk uh, uh it, it, it's the result of people not learning how to become individual human beings
0: mm-hmm. well perhaps that's because there are actually kind of victims of their philosophy or whether yes that's the, right. the, the few individuals that actually benefit from this happening as you, um, yeah. there's the interesting link yeah. then to, um, well, as well, of course, the Marxist philosophy, where you could, of course, as well in the Soviet Union, see that power um, has been going to fewer and fewer individuals.
1: I, I'm sorry, your voice garbled just a little bit. I heard you were talking yeah. about Marxist philosophy uh,
0: exactly. Yeah. And as yeah. well in, in the Soviet Union, where I could see the power uh, yes, was going certainly. to fewer and fewer individuals.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. And in uh, uh, not only in the Soviet Union, but uh, all of the dozen or so major experiments in uh, actual Marxist revolutions uh, and so on from you know Cambodia and Vietnam and China and uh, Cuba and uh, and so forth. Yes. uh, Yeah. Marxism is a uh, it's not as extreme, but it is another dehumanizing philosophy because it explicitly says that human beings are, 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 are a social being, that they're born into economic circumstances and they are totally shaped and molded by their economic circumstances. So you are you are a class social being and it explicitly denies any, uh, uh individual agency. Mm-hmm. And so in practice, when, uh, uh, Marxists or even neo-Marxists do come to power, they do, uh, engage in a, uh, an indoctrination form of education, starting with children as young as they possibly can, uh, to, uh, to totally mold them into what they take to be the one way of thinking. And just as, uh, Know, individuals' bodies can be uh, misshapen with, you know, bad nutrition and a lack of exercise. And, and it's in c- some cases, you know, just physical damage and physical abuse, the young body can, can't withstand it and it becomes misshapen for the rest of its life or broken. The same thing can happen, I think, psychologically, that you know, too much indoctrination and too much emotional stressing uh, can can overwhelm child's developing mind uh, to the point that it becomes stunted, and the child does become psychologically damaged. And at least to my knowledge of psychotherapy, uh, uh, you know, there can be some amelioration of some of the the worst symptoms, but if the damage is too much too soon, it can never be repaired. Wow.
0: Of course, um, often it is possible to a large degree, but yeah um I believe in um, Cain and Abel this was kind of portrayed pretty clearly with um, the the next seven generations of our kind being um, still influenced by the evil he has done
1: mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's an interesting question about how uh, yeah, any trait of an individual uh, gets transmitted to individuals in the next generation, right? Or if we generalize and say that there are cultural practices or cultural habits, how those get transmitted from generation to generation, yeah, how much of it, of course, is genetic, how much of it is... Uh, is, is environmental, how much of it is deterministic that it's necessarily going to be passed on from individual to individual, and how much of it is more of a matter of an influence that individuals can't accept or reject, but it requires some volition on the part of the, of the receiving generation. But certainly in the case uh, uh, of, uh, of, of cultural practices, this is I think precisely why We need to have free speech and uh, and a vigorous culture of challenging. Because, you know, there are lots of good cultural traditions that come down. There are also always, in the mix, bad cultural traditions. And if we start prizing cultural uniformity and certain things not being challenged and so on, we're precisely going to uh, eliminate the possibility of those uh, minority individuals who think for themselves and who are willing to challenge those traditions and point out the bad traditions and come up with better alternatives and slowly convince a society to move in a, in a better direction. And even any cultural practice that we, we think is a good practice, it can never just become automatic. Even the good cultural practices need to be thought about and they need to be challenged by the young people in the next generation. Uh, and if it is in fact a good cultural practice, it will be able to withstand that, that, uh, that challenge by the younger generation. But it's important for the younger generation to understand for themselves why that good cultural practice is a good cultural practice. And the way they do it is by challenging it and seeing if it can uh, withstand the challenges or not. And if so, then they can see with their own eyes, ah, that's a good, they will adopt it in a strong way and then be in a better position to teach it to their own children in the next generation
0: yeah um, precisely here um, and I've heard you talk about this previously is I believe where we see these uh, reasons for such nihilistic philosophies erupting in mm. the the tragedies of the world wars being um, such of a great challenge to for example the Christian belief that the what was previously, and I think you defined it as good faith, turned um, rather into bad faith. So this kind of still existing but rather unconscious, um, like we see with people putting up trees at Christmas and hiding eggs on Easter, but not even really mm. knowing why they do it.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are fascinating examples. Yeah. right And. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Each of us, uh, you know, when, when we're young, we can say in the case of a Christmas tree, we can enjoy the family ritual and, uh, uh, and, and the aesthetics of it. And we can understand the symbolism of, you know, having a symbol of life inside your home, particularly in the Northern climates when it's, when it's cold outside without necessarily knowing any of the history or the deep theology that may or may, may not be, uh, be behind that. So that's, uh, that's, that's an interesting set of uh, sociological issues there. But yeah, you also were talking about the difference between good faith and bad faith. And I'm not sure I quite grasped where you were going with that point. Okay, but mainly with the
0: um, kind of previously um, really understood ideas of why one believes oh yeah okay but then yes. uh, still still this being kind of innate you're as well talking about the genetic component um so still kind of actively but due to experiences not really um understood why it is there in the first place
1: sure yes that's right um yeah, and I, and I do think yeah, certainly for the important issues in, in one's life, uh, that good faith, if we can use that as a, as, a, as a term of art at this point here, that involves you know, having firm principles that you believe in and you're committed to and you're integrating into your life, but also understanding well for yourself why those good principles are good principles and to the extent that people adopt a more passive outlook, they just say, oh, there's a set of principles here. You know, authority figures have signed on to them or most other people believe these sorts of things. So I'm going to be lazy and just go along with what that is. And I might be firm in my, my, my practice of those principles, but it becomes a kind of bad faith because I don't really, at an important human level, understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. I am turning myself into uh, a sheep, to use that that metaphor, and that's a kind of dehumanizing—just following the herd or or following the shepherd. Yeah,
0: as, as Nietzsche observed in his times. Yes,
1: right. Yeah, yeah. Nietzsche and uh, and a large number. It was interesting uh, question. We find this in Tocqueville and Nietzsche, uh, Tocqueville in the early part of the nineteenth century, and uh, Nietzsche in the end of the. 20, uh, 19th century, and then Ayn Rand in the middle part of the 20th century. And there's, uh, all of them are interestingly probing a uh, kind of a puzzling thing about the modern world. Uh, it's not necessarily a political thing about the modern world, but the issue there is you know, in the modern world, we've solved so many political problems, right? We've given people so much freedom right? uh, and, and uh, liberty rights and right to your own life. And uh, we've gotten rid of so many double standards in the law and so on. So it's not the case that uh, the majority of people are actually politically oppressed or politically unfree in the, in the world. And we've gotten rid of large forms of slavery, right, and so on. So people are politically free. At the same time, uh, people are a whole lot richer. You know, they have all kinds of stuff you know, starvation rates have gone down. You don't have to be working 16 hours a day just in order to feed yourself and have a roof. You have nice clothes and good food and time for leisure activities and so on. So the, the, you know, the, the, the economic deprivations and all of the political authoritarianisms have largely been eliminated in the modern world. And so the optimism of the modern world was then to say, you know, we're, we're freeing people and empowering people and people are then going to go on and do wonderful creative exciting things with their lives right as a result of this but then you look around and you see you know th- that 90% of people are not doing very much with their lives right they are they're still following the herd they're still afraid of the big bad world they they uh, they're, they're still saying oh poor me i never had a chance in life right and and, and, and they're worried about what their mother-in-law thinks about this, that, and the other thing. So why in this enormous riches and freedom society, we have so many people who psychologically seem uh, uh, to be conformist, to be afraid of the world, to be kind of not ambitious and not at all excited or romantic about what they could in potential do with their lives. They seem to have given up on life on, on certain important things. And so yeah, you, you see Tocqueville worrying about this, you see Nietzsche worrying about this, you see Rand worrying about that. And uh, that is a fascinating question. All right, I'm yeah, just uh, mindful a little bit of the time. So uh, I know you are too. So maybe we could do one more quick round and then uh, draw this to a close for now. Of course, um, and I think that's, that's precisely coming
0: to the core of it because i would guess for this question that it is kind of this holding on to the abandoning of this responsibility and with this comes a kind of and this is especially astonishing um lack of thankfulness for as Mm. you told these amazing things around us
1: Mm. yeah
0: um yeah, yeah. Ephesus was kind of integrated into us that we would um, still complain. And of course, it is innate to us to have an aim and want to go beyond. But of course, to, to do so, we have to partake in action.
1: Um, yes, yes, that's right. So there are a number of interesting you know, hypotheses that we could start to explore, and we don't have time to do those right now. A certain amount of it, of course, can be you know, just bad parenting, where uh, uh, you know, parents don't uh, teach the children skills for, uh, for for progress and ambition. Everything is basically done for them, so they they grow up thinking that they don't have to exert certain kinds of yeah. effort, and that's that's a that's a certain kind of disservice. Yeah, it can um, be the, the this... fault of certain. Uh, um, pa- sorry? Yeah, um, to add to this,
0: perhaps um, this has been kind of erupting because the parents have not had these kind of opportunities and didn't know what to teach. So, yeah, it um, so going yes. on, the same issues were raised,
1: but uh, the situation has changed. Yes, that's that's a good point. Another variation that's possible. I think uh, uh, a certain amount of the blame can be put in formal schooling It's one of the great tragedies of the last century of uh, formal schooling that we uh, take young children who for the first five years or so of their life, they're full of energy and exploring and busy. And uh, and then we say, you're going to go to school and they're all excited about going to school. And I'm a big boy now and I'm a big girl and I'm gonna go to school. And then uh, within two years, they learn to hate school and just to feel bored and dehumanized. And uh, uh, the way a lot of parents will talk about it, you know, they see the light going out of their, their kids' eyes. Because you, know, you know to put the stereotype to it, you know, we, we take kids and we just put them in chairs and we say, sit there for six hours and do what we tell you to do. Uh, and so the kids just learn passivity and following the rules and so on. And that is another kind of, of dehumanization. So you do that for 12 years it's not surprising that a lot of people who are teenagers, they, they've had any you know, zest for life and enthusiasm beaten out of well, beaten them out of them is a little bit too strong, but uh, uh, bored into them <laughs> might be a better way to put it as well. So um, it is a, an ongoing puzzle. And of course, there are lots of formal religions and formal philosophies that to, to the extent those are indoctrinated into people that can be profoundly dehumanizing. You know, if you damage people's uh, belief that their cognitive capacities are, are, are efficacious, then that's going to stunt their minds. If you teach people strongly that they are worthless and sinful, and, you know, they're just gonna burn in hell, then uh, that's gonna scare the, scare the hell into people, so to speak. And, then, and fearful people are not going to be the kinds of adults who uh, are, are excited about life and its possibilities. Yeah, um,
0: that's quite a lot.
1: Um, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so yes, uh, just to throw one more. I mentioned yeah, religion and its use of of fear. Traditionally, some versions of religion, yeah, some modern forms of environmentalism are, I think, doing the same thing, Uh, quite quite dishonestly and quite uh, quite obviously in the face of what we know about uh, child psychology. So you know all of those you know uh, you know the the rabid anti-human types of environmentalism that are out there, that are taking five-year-old kids and seven-year-old kids and just scaring them, you know the, that all of the world is pollution, everything is poison, and it's your fault, and uh, the world is just going to die of poison or poison by before you're an adult. Well, that's what, what does that do to young people? Now that's an exaggeration. And I don't have good demographics about how many people there are, but there are a lot of teachers who are pretty far down that road. And that also is, a, a, I think, part of the explanation for why we have so many scared young people in, uh, in the recent generation. Okay. Good discussion, good range of questions too. I appreciate it very much.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah, that was great, even though the technical difficulties
1: Yes, those uh, those do crop up, but we persevered, and uh, at the same time, we should be grateful the technology enabled us <laughs> to have this conversation across the ocean. Yeah. So, thanks again.
0: Absolutely, um, my pleasure.